A special shout out to Jeremiah the Bullfrog for becoming the newest member of Team Southpaw on Patreon. You are our biggest supporter to date. For that, you are not only a legend, but a supreme Chuche legend. Thank you for your solidarity. This is Sam. This is Max. And this is Southpaw. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Today on Southpaw, we have Maximilian Alvarez. Maximilian is a teacher, writer, philosopher, agitator, a PhD candidate in both history and comparative literature, an unapologetic socialist, and also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Working People. Hi, Max. Hey, man. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of your podcast and a lot of your other works, but I noticed that out of all the things you do, the theme seems to center around labor and class consciousness. So how did this interest all start for you? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say that that was that is accurate. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think honestly, um, you know, the, the that theme, you know, that that kind of focus on class consciousness um, and, you know, class solidarity, right, it really tracks with my own kind of personal, you know, and intellectual development. Uh, you know, I've, I've mentioned on my show, Working People, and, you know, I've mentioned on kind of other interviews that I've done that, you know, the, the show really kind of arose out of like me and my family's own struggles to kind of pick up the pieces after and during the recession, right? I mean, you know, I, I, was fortunate enough um, to grow up in this sort of like, I would say, decade and a half when my folks who, you know, came from, you know, poor and working class backgrounds. My dad's a Mexican immigrant who grew up dirt poor in Tijuana before he came to the United States. My mom's family, you know, kind of moved to California um, from kind of like podunk uh, Dust Bowl, um, North Carolina. Um, they grew up in like Compton and South Central. And, you know, they, they really worked very, very hard over their life to kind of claw their way to a middle class existence. And, you know, it seemed like we had made it there um, for, I would say, most of my childhood. 
Um, and then everything just like went away. Everything disappeared with the recession. Right. My dad is involved in real estate. My mom, you know, uh, I mean, they both work tons of different jobs. My dad was like a, a you know, a cook at Sizzler. He was a security guard at a, a trailer park. My mom was a bank teller. Uh, she was a waitress at the Sizzler. That's how she and my dad actually met. Um, and, but, you know, she is a, a designer, an interior designer by trade, and she's a brilliant one at that. And so both of their careers were tied to the housing market in Southern California. And so our life growing up was really kind of a boom and bust life, right? You know, when the market was good, we could go on vacation. We were fortunate enough to do that, you know, and when it was bad, it was like, you know, it was, it was bad, right? I mean, like we were, we were, you know, taking in, you know, uh, kind of free donations from our family and stuff like that. And we were very lucky to have our extended family, you know, close by and, and we stuck, we stuck together, but you know, all that went away with the recession. Like since the recession, it's just kind of, you know, like so many other families, you know, our kind of what little wealth we had was just flattened out to nothing or, you know, more realistically, we are all like negative wealth. Um, and, you know, I would say that that coupled with like, you know, all the shitty jobs that I had worked and, you know, kind of just the, the changing landscape in the American political scene really started to, I think, radicalize me in a way that, you know, reading about labor history or reading radical political theory never really could, right? You know, that material kind of, those material circumstances really, I think, shaped our consciousness in a, in a way that, um, you know, you, it really kind of pushed me towards wanting to do this kind of work. And, you know, I would say that, you know, there was, there was a lot, there was a lot to deal with there, right? Like not just financially, but personally, psychologically, emotionally, right? You know, I could see just the, it was like a dark pall had been cast over our entire family, right? You know, when I would go home, everyone was depressed. Everyone was kind of, it was like a twilight zone thing. You know, that twilight zone movie where there's the one kind of segment where there's like the boy who could control the world with his thoughts and like everyone in that town is kind of like forcing a smile and like living on tenterhooks because they know that if they think something bad that the this boy will be able to read their thoughts and he may like kill them or turn them into some horrifying monster or something like that and you mustn't think bad thoughts about me either or i'll do the same thing to you (laughs) Play some more music. It's good what you've done to Dan. It's real good. It was swell. It was just swell. It was really good. I guess it was kind of like that, right? It was like you know, obviously we still loved each other. Obviously we tried to kind of find joy whenever we could, but it was like, there was this thing, this huge black, like sucking 
force that we were all desperately trying to like not wake up and to not acknowledge, but we all knew it was there. And, you know, I think it caused all of us to kind of recede further and further into ourselves and we started to lose each other, right? We started to not be able to talk to each other the way that we used to. We, I could see, and especially in my dad, but also in my mom and even in myself and my siblings, you know, that we couldn't process, you know, a, the, the loss that, that we and, and people around the world had suffered, but also, you know, we couldn't, you know, I I felt like, you know, it really showed just how little in this capitalist culture we give each other the tools for, um, kind of making it through these kinds of events for first being able to kind of talk openly about what we're going through as opposed to, you know, burying ourselves under the crushing shame of not living up to some kind of ridiculous standard that keeps all of us, you know, uh, just depressed because I think most of us are falling short of that. And there's a reason for that, right? That's ideology at work. So anyway, I know I know this is like kind of a, a long-winded backstory, but it was really, I think, in that period, that, that decade since the recession that, you know, I could see um, all of these kind of personal and psychological and emotional, you know, dynamics playing out between me and my family. And the more that I started to talk to other working people, the more that my dad as an Uber driver started to talk to the people that he was driving and and he would hear that, you know, he was driving people his age who were going to their third job or people who had lost their house. And I think that was when he really started to see that it wasn't just him, right? That it wasn't, you know, all his fault, that this was a massive, you know, international economic, you know, tidal wave that had cleared away so many people's hopes and dreams. And that that kind of, I think, I wouldn't say radicalized him, but it pushed him out of a lot of conservative thinking that, you know, he had he had, had for a long time. And I think that I wanted to harness that. I saw something really important about that ability to kind of just talk to other people and the kind of political value that, you know, can come from showing your scars to each other from not feeling alone, you know, in this kind of crushing system that keeps all of us, um, you know, barely above water. And, you know, so that's, that's really where I think my interest in why that was, what was it, you know, about the making those kinds of connections with our fellow workers? What was it about opening up in this sort of way that could really, you know, be a driving political force for building something new and that could really, you know, help us get out of like this deep existential rut that capitalism puts so many of us in as it alienates us more and more from others and ourselves? I wanted to, you know, make working people the podcast that I have where I interview workers from around the country. I wanted to make that a space where workers could feel seen and heard and recognized for the complex human beings that they are. Because I think once we start to kind of acknowledge that shared humanity, that complex humanity that capitalism denies us, then we can start to feel a stronger solidarity and a stronger sense of injustice at what we are being denied under this system and what we need to fight for. And so I think that's that's really, you know, 
kind of where my interest in, in these sorts of topics came from. So was working people kind of a no brainer at that point then, because you had this energy, you wanted to harness it in some way, and then you were talking to people anyway, and then you decided people need to hear this. I need to record this. So, I mean, in a, it, I guess looking back, it feels like a no brainer um, because like, you know, one thing, and, and we can maybe talk about this as we go on, but like, you know, obviously you have a podcast, I have a podcast, you know, so many of us are, are kind of hustling to get our work out there to start the kinds of conversations that we believe need to be had, especially on the left, but, but not only on the left. And, you know, we are kind of in many ways pushed to feel like we are competing with one another um, for mindshare, for Patreon subscriptions, right? It, it turns us all into, you know, very, um, devout capitalist really competition yeah i mean it makes us again it just it just really you know turns us from you know what should be comrades into kind of competitors and i and i think that's a really destructive force that we need to be more serious and cognizant about but you know the the reason i bring that up right is like you know, I started um, kind of in this this left media world as a writer, and I still consider myself a writer. But, you know, I, I had written a lot of stuff for like The Baffler. I was a columnist there. Um, I'd written for like Current Affairs. And now I write for places like In These Times, The Nation and stuff like that. And I love writing. But, you know, I noticed that you know, while, while there were people doing incredible work, people who had for years been, you know, fighting against the grain to lift up worker issues and, and the voices of working people like the writers that in these times, like Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen on belabored podcast and stuff like that. You know, they, they in many ways were like the exceptions that proved the rule that in a lot of this kind of left media space, there was a lot of talk about the plight of working people and very little kind of talking to working people, right? Like in deep and sustained ways, like not just kind of gathering quotes for an article, no matter how important that is. Like I felt like there was a real absence of humanity in a lot of the ways that we talked about our fellow workers. Um, and, and I think that, you know, that's why in retrospect, it does seem like a no brainer to just be like, well, just let them talk, just find, just find them and, and chat with them. I mean, like, and, and, you know, I, I would say that <clears throat> the reason I brought up the kind of hyper competitive, uh, nature of all this is that, you know, I've had since the show is kind of built up and, and started to take off a bit more, you know, some other shows will have started to kind of do this sort of thing. They'll bring on workers, they'll talk to them. And a, a fair amount of them have like DM'd me or tweeted at me to say like, oh, I don't, I don't want to step on your toes, you know, like, or, or something like that. And I'm like, look, like, man, to me, we should all be doing this, right? I mean, like, if it were up to me, every kind of left media outfit would be trying as hard as it could to not just speak to the working class, but to make a working class media, right? To really 
think about and produce, um, you know, a bottom up grassroots media ecosystem where we are including the kinds of people that we want to speak to and 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 learn from and mobilize right in the ways that we don't have with the mainstream media. Right. Like none of us have access to fucking MSNBC. Right. They they may be talking ostensibly to us, but we can never talk back. And, and the left has a real opportunity to use the kind of media tools that are available to us to change that. And I think that, you know, that's that's really good and that's really important. And, you know, to anyone out there who's worried about stepping on toes, I would say just, you know, just acknowledge, you know, the the people that you're working and thinking with. Like as long as you just kind of give us a nod and say or, you know, give a nod to the people who have been doing this work, that's great. I like I don't feel like we're competitors. Like, but if like, you know, a bigger show does this sort of thing and and their leads their followers to believe that they're the only ones doing it then i think we've got a problem then you're acting like a shitty capitalist and you're not showing solidarity with the, with the other people in this um kind of ecosystem and i think that's a that's an impulse we need to fight against but yeah i mean to to really kind of answer your point i think in terms of like you know all that complex stuff i was saying about you know alienation under this capitalist system and the ways that we are kind of divorced from you know real social connections real kind of deep um existential connections that make us feel like you know we are not alone in this world and that other people see us and and acknowledge us for the you know complex human beings that we are right that is something that i think so many of us are hungry for and we feel it even if we don't know it right we miss it even if we've never had it and i think that that speaks to kind of this deep human need that capitalism um extinguishes or tries to suffocate and it's our job on the left to really give breath to that give life to that because i feel like that is the fertile soil in which we can really build uh, a robust politics that is that is forged with the type the type of solidarity that will withstand the reactionary pushback that we're inevitably going to get what you just explained and how you got to the type of work that you're doing speaking to working people and humanizing them as far as what influenced your work and how you go about it, did you have some people like influences or political heroes that maybe unconsciously or, you know, maybe consciously that you drew from? I think so. I mean, um, you know, even if it wasn't even if they weren't like kind of conscious influences at the time, I think that looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I can I can really see more of the ways that. You know, the people that I've read, the people that I've talked to, the people who have helped me, you know, have really shaped my approach to politics. And I mean, I guess just kind of starting with the most obvious um, kind of influences, you know, in the very first episode of Working People, uh, which was with my dad. Right. And, and to date, it's the most listened to episode because, you know, it's it's where this project began. And, you know. Like I said, um, you know, I just kind of turned the recorder on and I didn't know where I wanted the conversation to go, but I know I wanted to give that to my dad, uh, who I love very much. And I was just so blown away by how much he opened up, you know, he opened up about his life story, um, 
all the way from like his mom dying in Mexico, his dad deserting him and his siblings, being separated from his siblings as he was brought over to the U.S. Like he's had a hard life. And, and you know, I, I think he opened up to me in a way that he never really had before. And he opened up about the recession what it was like to lose everything that he had worked so hard for and why he voted for Trump as a Mexican immigrant, you know, who is very much, you know, like uh, not a kind of rich person. Right. Like and and I was so captivated by the fact that like once the recorder was on, he was able to open up that much. Like, surely you would think it would be the opposite. But but again, I think it, it really speaks to that deep need that we all have to feel seen and heard and feel like our stories and our lives matter. And, you know, I think that um, that's kind of been the guiding impetus of the show. A lot of people ask me, it's like, how do you, how do you know what types of questions to ask these people that you've never met? And I'm like, I don't, right? I mean, because again, I, I think the no brainer part of that is that it, in many ways, it kind of doesn't matter. Like, obviously you want to be attentive to them. You want to, you want to really listen to them and show care with like how you respond. But I think more than anything, once you give, you know, your your neighbors and your coworkers that space to just talk like, you know, human beings together, to not like try to exploit one another and to not, you know, feel like you're treating each other as some sort of like cold commodity, then the conversation itself is the event and where it goes is almost always going to be interesting because everyone's lived an interesting life. Everyone has a story to tell, right? The problem is that we just don't give ourselves the you know opportunities to hear them and we don't train ourselves to listen to them. And I think once we do, we'll see just all the complex and beautiful and painful humanity that we don't acknowledge on a day-to-day basis all the memories and experiences of the people that we just briskly walk past on the sidewalk or at the the security desk at our office buildings or that you know when we're paying for groceries um and we you know make chit chat with the teller there's so much human stuff that we all are holding on to and that none of us, you know, that that so many of us don't acknowledge or feel like we can acknowledge. And so I think if you just tap into that, it's always going to be worthwhile no matter where the conversation goes. And, you know, the people who I think really taught me to think about it that way, right, was like, you know, obviously people like Studs Terkel, who I mentioned in the intro to the very first episode with my dad, you know, a man who who built a career off of just talking to working people about their lives and their jobs and really seeing them for, you know, more than just, you know, like a, a, a faceless kind of body that opens the door for you when you walk into your building. Right. So that was really, you know, that that I really, you know, owe a lot to people like Studs Terkel um, in that sort of documentary vein. But also, you know, on the humanist side, on the side that, you know, saw this project as more than just kind of like a pure documentary endeavor to, you know, ask questions to workers around the country, but instead, you know, pushed me to believe that it was a much bigger project that was steeped in in the you know effort to to revivify our lost shared humanity 
I mean, you know, I would say I'm a I'm a I'm a literature guy through and through. I, I you know, I've always loved literature and and literature. Really, I think I think I would credit literature and, and you know, also with like, you know, the the kind of empathy that my mom, you know, really taught me to feel my my siblings, my family. They're very caring and 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 attentive to those sorts of things you know i i would say that coupled with you know the literature that i read voraciously you know through my young life um that really kind of taught me to think more about what it means to be human and what it means when you know we live in a society that negates that sort of humanity or that again suffocates it under the weight of the daily grind and kind of the the alienated force that makes us all skeptical of one another that makes us all afraid of one another and afraid of what the next day itself might bring when we're all so tenuously holding on to you know whatever station we we have in this life and you know i i've actually credited literature for kind of bringing me out of my conservative upbringing and towards being the you know lefty nut job that i am today <laughs> and you know i i i think uh, the list is so long, but I mean, my first love was Russian literature. I loved the kind of ways that Dostoevsky and even Gogol and Bulgakov and Chekhov and, you know, all these these writers that I just, you know, got so into, especially as an undergraduate at the University of Chicago. They really kind of taught me what it means to, you know, see outside of your own head and to try to imagine the movements and feelings and motivations of other people who were just as complex as I was, right? I think that was the major linchpin for taking me out of the conservative mindset was that literature forces you to imagine the world from other people's heads. And you know, the conservative worldview does not, right? The you know, the conservative worldview pushes you to be convinced that you are the most real and and important kind of person alive and to build a politics around that and so everyone from like i said dostoevsky and gogol to you know carson mccullers to kafka and david foster wallace and just a million other you know amazing writers um guadalupe natel they taught me to you know i think see people differently and to see myself differently in relationship to them and that's really informed kind of the ways that i approach this podcast my writing and you know other people. Yeah, I want to emphasize that because I think a lot of people, even good-hearted, well-intentioned people, undervalue the the importance of literature. And when I mean literature, I mean narrative fiction. Because so often they only read maybe theory or nonfiction. And so they don't get that practice in thinking from another character's perspective. We talk about the other, but we don't do enough practice reading literature where we're reading and thinking and empathizing from the perspective of that other. I think that's right. And, and, you know, not to get kind of too in the theoretical weeds here, but like, you know, when you mentioned the other, right, I think, I think the, the concept of the other, right. You know, this, this kind of, this figure that is, that is, like again somehow 
less human than you are, right? That, 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 you know, you are basing your definition of humanity on yourself and your own experiences, right? That is the raw material that we have to work with to understand the human experience, right? Is, is our own life. And I think that, you know, that that's just the human condition and that's not good or bad on its own. But when, right, you live, say, like in, you know, a dominant, a dominant, like white patriarchal Western, quote unquote, society, your life experiences are going to be colored by different cultural forces, different dominant norms, right? And different, you know, socioeconomic benefits that say other people around the world or even other people within your own city don't have. And to, you know, if we don't have the frame to understand who they are and what their experiences are, and, you know, if we don't have the the kind of frame to understand who they are and what their experiences have been, right, you know, they're, they're always going to seem othered, right? They're always going to seem like they came from some, you know, foreign land and, and even like foreign planet, right? And I think that, you know, that concept of the other has really done a lot of important work and a lot of people have done important work with it to understand right how we can commit violence against other people how we can live with ourselves while participating in and benefiting from you know cultural and economic systems that wreak havoc and death and and violence and injustice upon our fellow human beings so regularly and so systematically right we we are able to kind of rationalize that by othering them by not by deliberately not understanding them and by feeling like their humanity is somehow less understandable than ours and i think that you know doing that sort of work is important. But I think if we take the concept of the other kind of too far, then, or if we treat it, if we don't treat it, I would say with the respect that it deserves. And if we, we just kind of use it as a kind of tool, a theoretical tool and nothing more, then you get into kind of this, this um, obsession with thinking of the other as infinitely unknowable. And and then I think you develop a sort of politics that, you know, kind of forcefully pretends like you can never understand anything about your fellow human beings. And I think it's done from a good place. I think, you know, when people tell me it's like, oh, I can't understand what that must have been like for you as a as a brown man, you know, as a Mexican, as a as a son of an immigrant. Right. You know, it, it, like I appreciate that. But also, like, I think that I've seen how and, I, and I'd be curious to hear, you know, if you've experienced this as well. Right. It's it's I've seen how, you know, people can turn that into a kind of essentializing thing where they they start to talk about me as if like I'm not human like they are right like all my all my experiences can only be understood by me or people like me and i think that that's when we cross the threshold into turning the other into kind of a a, a negative force that kind of prevents us from you know seeing and caring for and cultivating the the bonds of, of a shared humanity and and the solidarity with living on a shared planet, right, that uh, I think a robust left politics needs to have. And, you know, I, I, I 
I guess I hadn't like kind of put all those thoughts kind of out there. But when you mentioned the other, you know, I do think that, you know, that is that is kind of the tightrope that I try to walk with working people and that I try to walk in my own writing, right, is like respecting people for, you know, being the experts of their own experience and, and you know, having that sort of complexity in their own lives that I could never understand because I haven't lived in their own head. But also on the other side, you know, while while respecting, you know, their different experiences and their different position within the society and treating that respectfully and, and listening to them, you know, when they when they tell me and others about it, you know, I also think it's important to, you know, balance that with trying to kind of find the things that bind us and that make us feel closer to one another and that make us feel like we should be caring for one another, right? Because if you don't have that, then what what sort of future do you think you can build with each other right what sort of what sort of common bonds can you call upon to establish a a more just and equitable society if we feel like we are so unknowable to each other yeah there's a difference between um a person that you're not familiar with versus an alien that you can never know right and so if you know that this is still a person then you can get to know them but if they're an alien, then you just give up. And so there is no shared solidarity. There's no shared humanity. And to your point about, you know, I can never understand your struggle. It's so different from saying, I don't know, but I want to know and I want to learn. Can you teach me? They don't necessarily have to say that, but that attitude. Right. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, and, and I don't think there's one prescription, right? I mean, like, you know, even even within, you know, quote unquote othered communities, right? Because even then the, you know, obviously the the very logical foundation of the other is that there is some dominant kind of normal identity that is counterposed with the other, right? So you you are essentially outside of the dominant norm, which we presume to kind of be the white, cis, hetero, male, I don't know, uh, middle class existence, right? There's so <clears throat> But even within all of that, right, I mean, like, there are so many different layers of experience and identity and place, you know, depending on, you know, who you are as a person, you know, your, your, um, kind of bodily and cognitive abilities, the the community that you grew up in, your socioeconomic status, your ethnic background, the language that you speak, right? There's such kind of like a, a, a rich diversity in our human experience that you know, it, it's almost like kind of laughable to kind of even assume that like even if you are, say, within that dominant kind of identity camp and you're trying to kind of show respect and deference for, you know, the I don't know, the Latino experience, the Asian American experience, the black experience, you know, on the other side of that, we're like, well, you know, we're, we're fucking, you know, complex, too. Right. I mean, there is no one, you know, experience. Right. <laughs> like there's. Yeah. Then, and, and so that's where I, I guess I would just say, you know. It can slip into, you know, I, I think those good intentions for acknowledging that, you know, uh, that you that you, you know, acknowledging people, the complexity of people's lives to the point where you you don't presume to know everything about them. That's a good thing. But you can almost be so polite about it that you 
kind of essentialize them anyway by 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 like making them feel and and appear so different from you uh that only they can kind of tell you about it i think that's messy right and that's why we have we have to talk to each other we have to listen as attentively as we possibly can and we have to work you know with the kind of messy social context that we live with them I mean, I see that with entertainment, like TV and movies, where they're trying to give such deference, right? And and here is this different culture that maybe they have just one character that is black or that is Asian or whatever. And But then in their intent of trying to do something good, they only represent one kind and they don't even show the variety within that group. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, like, I think I wrote in like a, a, a baffler piece about this. Um, it was one of the pieces I think I'm most proud of, but it was called Cogito Zero Sum, right? which is a play play on Descartes thing. Um, but it kind of talks about this. And and I was like, you know, there, there is that, yeah, kind of like well-meaning liberal essentialism where, you know, I have like, you know, good friends or acquaintances who are trying to kind of like defend me or my people, quote unquote. And they end up making me sound like I'm the like the child of like, you know, <laughs> like just I don't know, like humble Mexican peasants. And, and like I'm, I'm just <laughs> I'm just this kind of, yeah, like just archetype of Mexicanity and, and Mexican-American experiences. I'm like, guys, like, look, I, I appreciate it. But like, but calm down. <laughs> you become flat, right? You become a flat character. Right. Going back to working people and not just the podcast, but just in your um, conversations with working people, you mentioned earlier that there was a sense of like, no one listens to me or the sense of like, no one cares. Would you say that's been the through line in your conversations with working people? I would say in a, in a, in a way, I think, yes, because like I kind of said before, um, and, and I guess for anyone listening, if you want to kind of go deeper into like my theoretical convictions about this, I just did a, a an episode with Brett from Rev Revolutionary Left Radio, another great show. Um, and we talked about Marxist humanism and I really kind of laid out, you know, a lot of these thoughts in more detail and, and Brett and I had a great conversation. So I won't I won't walk through a, a lot of that again here. But, you know, in there, I kind of said, like I was saying earlier, is that I think, you know, you know, just it, by nature of the system that we live within, by nature of living under a late capitalist, uh, you know, kind of machinery that treats us all as commodities, right? And that commodifies everything, including our relationships to one another, to the point where we can only, we only like, it only feels natural connecting with people as commodities as people that you can trade you know and get stuff from yeah how many downloads do you get before you agree to get on a podcast right like i've felt that before from people i've reached out to right and and i mean like and that that takes a toll on you right i think i think anyone you know who isn't you know fucking rich but even i think the rich you know like have their own demons that they are trying to kind of uh you know push under the rug and that leads them to kind of committing such atrocities at our expense. But yeah, I think anyone will recognize that, right? That like, you know, if you live long enough under this sort of system where every joy and every connection that you can have or make 
comes with a price tag, right? Comes, you know, in the form of some sort of market exchange. What does that do to your sense of, of your own humanity? Like, you know, what does that make you feel like you as a person have to offer if that is the only kind of if those are the only pathways through which you're, you know, and if human agency can be expressed and your human connection with other people can be um, can be had. Right. I think that that it's it's deadening. Right. It, it really, like I said, it takes a toll on all of us and it makes us sad and lonely and miserable and anxious. It makes us always feel like we have to work to prove our worth when we as human beings are already worth so much that goes so unacknowledged in this fucking brutal system. Right. And, and, you know, if, if, if we don't look at that right dead on, Right. You know, we are not, I think, going to be able to tap into the richest vein through which kind of solidarity can be built, which is kind of like that shared heart and soul of the human experience as, you know, beings who are made in conversation with one another, like who we are is dependent on other people and on the world that we live in and need to protect and, you know, not destroy. Like there, there is such a complex and beautiful kind of circuitry to our shared humanity that makes us all who we are that, you know, again, this, this system tries as hard as it possibly can to keep us from seeing. It wants instead to make us all feel like atomized consumers, right? Who are just kind of walking through this sort of rat maze and trying to find little bits of cheese whenever we can and to be satisfied with that. But so I think we are all yearning for something more because we know deep down somewhere we were made for more than this and that we deserve more than this. And I think you know, a left politics has to be steeped in that. It has to tap into that deep, soulful, existential resentment towards a world that has denied us the humanity that we should all, you know, have a right to cultivating and expressing and feeling in a ways that we can't under this fucking system. And and it doesn't I think I think the main message of the show and the main kind of point to go back to your question the the common thread that i think comes out of these discussions once you start to kind of together stare into that abyss and realize all that has been taken from us all the kind of humanity that is denied us in this system and all that we could be if we lived under a system where that wasn't the case we realize more and more that it doesn't have to be this way I think that is is really the common kind of thread that comes up through, you know, a lot of these discussions is like, you know, I, I don't I don't think that people want to believe that this is the only way it could be or needs to be, even even if they've been beaten down so much that they themselves are not hopeful for change. I think deep down we all know that we could have something different. And we could be something different and something more, something that we are supposed to be, but that we have kind of been prevented from being because of this system that would rather, you know, sacrifice the possibilities that our kind of collective humanity can achieve 
for the purposes of turning us into nothing but pure labor power and cheap commodities who can make, you know, like more profit for a small few. Yeah, it reminds me of not just from activism, but also from mental health discussions, right? This feeling of, like you said, it doesn't have to be this way. We can do something about this. It's kind of like this class depression that we're all sharing. It, yeah, I, I I would agree, and I think you know, um, you know, people like um, Mark Fisher, you know, wrote about that very beautifully, right? You know, they talked about the ways that, you know, and 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 not just Fisher. There are so many brilliant people, you know, that I couldn't recite here who have talked about like the fact that like you know we've been trained to think of our psychology as just something as like the hard wiring in our circuit boards in our head. And that leads us to believe that, you know, when we feel this kind of deep existential dread, when we feel beaten down by the system and we feel helpless against it, and that manifests in, you know, things like depression and anxiety or worse, right? We are taught to feel like that is just us. Like it's just something wrong with us that can be either anesthetized with certain medicines or if you pay for certain kind of wellness programs you can fix it all you need to do is change your attitude and like no it's like you know if you are living you're living in a fucking brutal inhumane system you are you are going to kind of make people feel like shit right and and you know there's a reason why we are so kind of forcefully trained to not think of our psychology as in any way as being in any way dependent on the world that we inhabit there's a reason for that right because once you start to see it that way you start to realize that this world is killing us this world this world hurts us and we need you know more than just a few pills or you know yoga to deal with that right we need to change the kind of arrangement in which human life can live and flourish and and i think again that should be the kind of soil you know in which a a left politics can grow and you know i I've, I've been thinking about this you know a lot recently right because i i was i was reading you know, about the the boy, you know, the Guatemalan boy who died of the flu in, you know, Border Patrol custody. He wasn't taken to the hospital like he should have been. He died on the floor, the cold concrete floor alone, away so far from his family in a country that did not see all of that kind of complex and beautiful humanity that he had and that he had lived that just looked at him and saw nothing but a cockroach and and he died like one he died of the flu writhing in pain all by himself you know in this fucking cell that with 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 white people like and 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 border patrol agents like 20 feet away they could have saved him and they just let him die right like that is that is the 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 inhumanity of a system that has become so routine, routinized, so regularized that we don't even bat an eye when, you know, people like this boy, Carlos Gregorio Hernandez Vasquez, dies like that way. And when so many people on our streets are dying that way, and when so many of us are dying, you know, slowly from, you know, not having kind of access to all the basic rights uh, that, that we deserve, 
like healthcare, like, you know, food, you know, and, and, and the, again, like the, the inhumanity of the system is so goddamn pervasive that I think it would crush us to really confront it like at once. And so I think we kind of really tried to kind of anesthetize ourselves from it. We tried to not look at it. We try to, you know, I, I, I don't think that most people are so callous and terrible and, and, beastly that they just do not care about that inhumanity they do not care about that sort of violence that we wreck upon our fellow human beings i i i tend to think that most people are so beaten down already and so afraid of confronting that system by themselves and confronting the truth of the enormity of that system's inhumanity that I think they couldn't stand to look at it and feel helpless to change it. It reminds me of that William Butler Yeats quote, right? About the courage we need to examine the dark corners of our soul, how it's more terrifying than a battlefield, but even beyond our own individual soul, to your point, right? As a collective society, it's the same thing. It is that scary to examine it. So, but then we become complicit because we ignore it and we don't think about it. And then atrocities like that happen. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And that's a, oh, it's a great quote. And, and it does, it, it, it encapsulates kind of everything that we're talking about here. Right. Like, like I said, like I, 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 I don't want to believe that the majority of, our fellow human beings are so callous that they have looked deep into the reality of this inhumanity and they're fine with it. I think that that most of us, again, you know, we are laboring and living under a system that has already kind of uh, killed so much of the nerve endings that feel that shared humanity and that it's the left's job to revivify that. And so many of us are so kind of where we have so little kind of love and care left that it would take too much for us to confront that inhumanity and to feel like there was nothing we could do to change it. I think that would crush us. And that's why people tend to prefer to just not look, right? Not because they don't care, but because, you know, unless we provide a force that they believe can actually do something about it, then, you know, the, the, I think reckoning with that inhumanity and our infinite helplessness as individuals to do anything about it, I think that's too much for any person to really handle. And so that's what the left needs to do. The left needs to provide that sense that not only that, you know, that this system has taken so much from us, but that it, it could be different, right? Because I, then I think if you, if you provide that sort of pathway, then, you know, all that kind of anger and resentment and, and desire for a better world, you know, will really find a place to channel itself and we can really change things. Now, uh, a term that you've been using is the left or left politics. So let's talk about that. Um, because one of the things you criticize is the Democratic establishment and the Democratic Party itself. Now, all of my listeners are interested in learning more about left politics, but unlike other leftist podcasts, 
Southpaw is like the the marijuana of left podcasts, where it's like the the gateway drug into deeper left politics <laughs> and conversations. So the majority of the people they're interested, but they don't know. Whereas you know you might go onto other podcasts, and it's already people who are well knowledge about you know theory and all that stuff. This is not that. So for many who are listening to them, the Democratic Party and the left might be one and the same, and liberal and left might be the same thing. So could you unpack that for us, how um, the American left has aligned with the Democratic Party, but it still is independent from the Democratic Party? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly try. And, and I mean, you know, gateway, the, the being a gateway drug to the left is a great thing. Um, and I think we need more of it, right? Because if we're all just talking to ourselves, if we're all preaching to the choir, uh, you know, then what good are we, right? Um, you know, I think this has been one of my common critiques, uh, of the left, right? Is like, we get so understandably caught up in kind of tactical debates about whether or not we should be voting or, you know, yada, yada, yada. And, I think one of my biggest complaints is like, guys, like, you know, this country is really fucking big, right? There are a lot of people and the vast majority of them do not know who we are. The vast majority of them don't vote or not, you know, like there's there's just so many people in this country and in this world who are not politically activated. And, you know, I think that, you know, our yeah mainstream kind of political culture only tells us that there are two options, right? And the the worse the Democratic Party kind of gets, the more it seems like those are those two options are more or less the same. Right. Even even if they're saying different things, the effects are kind of the same. Right. And I don't to any like kind of hardline Democrats listening like I'm just asking you to think about how this appears to people who are laboring under this sort of system that we've been talking about. Right. You know, like in that very first episode with my dad on working people we talked about this i was like so you, i was like dad you lost everything in the recession we lost everything so why did you vote for trump right and and you know you, you can hear him talk about it he's like look you know i've i've been a republican voter my whole life but you know i lost everything under a democratic president I watched as the Democratic president, you know, Obama, like kind of bailed out banks and we got no help. They tried to apply for like the government programs to save their house and they were denied. Right. They didn't. And and then, you know, Hillary Clinton was kind of telling them to just stay the course and he couldn't do that. Right. I, I, I understand why he couldn't do that. His choices were either Trump or stay home. That was that was what it appeared like to him. Right. And and Trump was a Hail Mary for him. But he was like, maybe it will joggle something loose that will help us, because right now I'm I'm mostly concerned with the well-being of my family. And that's that's the case for, I think, pretty much all of us. Right. No matter how much we want to believe that, you know, a, a more just political project will be kind of based on a sense of collective identity, which it should be, you know, most people will will inevitably kind of their politics will be driven by their care and concern for their immediate surroundings and for the people that they love and care about. Right. And, and, you know, politics arises from that immediate connection that we have to the world. And, you know, I, I, I kind of go on that tangent to kind of say that, you know, there's a long, there's a long kind of history here, obviously between the Democrats and the Republicans, they, 
you know, I think one problem with our mainstream political culture is that we tend to kind of have an ahistorical view of who those parties actually are when they've changed dramatically over the years, right? The Democratic Party and the Republican Party have never just been one thing, right? They have the 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 constituencies that we associate with them have have moved from one side to the other. They have fluctuated depending on changing kind of political circumstances, whether that be the Civil War or the Great Depression and the New Deal or the civil rights movement, right, that pushed so many Southern Democrats into the Republican Party, right, or kind of after um, World War II, right, the kind of shift of the Democratic Party away from, you know, working people and labor unions and organized labor in general towards a more neoliberal kind of bond with the kind of middle and professional classes. There's a lot of internal dynamics between the Democrats and the Republicans that I think makes it hard to understand who they actually are, right? But, But I think one thing is true, like you said, that you know, for, for I think your average person, however you uh, interpret that, I guess I, I hate that. I always hate that term, the average person. But I guess the person the person for people with the average amount of like, I guess, knowledge about our political system. Right. You know, like the horizons of, of political possibility are defined by the mainstream Democrat and Republican Party. And. You know, I think one thing that the emergent left is trying to do, just like, you know, leftist factions in the past have tried to do, is show people that the electoral system that is dominated by these two parties is not the only realm of politics. It is a realm of politics that, you know, we need to take seriously. Like, yeah, you should vote. You should try to push, you know, the party towards the direction that you want it to go. You have more means than, you know, just voting every four years to do that. You can be running for local office. You should be working with, you know, organizations that can, you know, develop legislation or that can pressure elected officials to push for the kinds of policy changes that you think need to happen, right? There are so many kind of mechanisms that we have for kind of motivate or um, mobilizing kind of like our political capacities that just like, you know, this system does with our common humanity, this system kind of convinces us that those, um, you know, pathways to political engagement are also not there and that the only way to in- involve yourself in politics is to just kind of choose from a number of pre-selected candidates uh, in a party that may throw you a few bones, but that is more or less going to serve the interests of the ruling classes that, you know, are donating to you no. Know, donating to their campaigns and funding the legislation that they want passed at the expense of our collective interests. And I think, you know, that's there's a reason for that. Right. You know, people like Bernie Sanders have been calling this out. You know, they've been saying, like, look, like, you know, our political system has been bought and paid for, you know, by the people who are you know, really running this country by the people who, you know, really have the most, you know, political and economic power because they have the most money they have that, you know, we don't. Right. And so, you know, when when that is the case, 
you know, I, I can see why so many people on the left, you know, feel like there's no point in engaging in elections, you know, when they feel like it's so kind of thoroughly um, bought off by, you know, the ruling class. But again, I, I guess I would just kind of push people to say that, you know, the left is a is a is a very broad term and it's a very broad kind of po- political position. And, you know, there are so many organizations, local and national and international, that are pushing for more left-leaning um, kind of visions for our future society that are not limited by the kind of prerogatives of the mainstream Democratic Party. And, you know, the the, the mainstream Democratic Party has a vested interest in kind of convincing you that that those organizations and those people and those communities um, are are bad, right? Or, you know, like pointless, right? They, they have a vested interest in convincing you that they're the only game in town if you have any sort of kind of progressive leaning tendencies. And I think the left, whether it be through DSA, whether it be through local labor organizations um, or labor unions, whether it be through student organizations. Um, There's so many kind of ways that that people are kind of coming together to imagine, you know, political possibilities that, you know, go beyond just kind of tweaking this capitalist system to be a little less inhumane, um, but that still kind of preserve the underlying kind of structure of that system. Again, we we can have more. We deserve more, right? We deserve, you know, a political movement that demands, you know, that education and healthcare are a right and not something that can only be, you know, afforded to rich people and people of means, you know, quote unquote, right? That that you know, paid maternity leave should be a right, right? That no one should live in poverty. Not just no one, you know, who works 40 hours a week. No one. No one should live on the street. No one should die in the cold. No one should die, you know, because they can't afford their goddamn health care, right? These are kind of like such obvious universalist principles that I think at a gut level, we all or most of us believe in, but we have just been kind of convinced that they're not possible by, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. And that's a problem. But I think like, you know, the left has has kind of reinvigorated, you know, the discussion and people, you know, have started to see again, kind of connecting back to what we were talking about before is like once you start to acknowledge kind of the the humanity of your, you know, fellow workers and fellow citizens and fellow human beings around the world. Then and once you start to acknowledge the inhumanity of our political economy, right, then you start to really see the 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 purchase that, you know, a politics you start to see the purchase of a politics that asserts, you know, um, that these things like healthcare and, you know, a kind of common universal basic kind of outcome and and standard of living are deserve we are deserving of it that 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 we should have those things because they are humane because that should be the starting point of you know our politics do you think a lot of this renewed interest in the left started with the aftermath of the recession i think in a lot of ways it did um i mean i think that <clears throat> there is 
you know, we can run the risk of of being ahistorical uh, when we, you know, a lot of like, say, journalists and pundits will kind of attribute this resurgence of the left to like the 2016 election. And that's obviously a big part of it, right? Because once people saw how well like Bernie Sanders did and once people saw, you know, like the the victories of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, they started to feel like, oh, shit, this is actually possible. You know, we we should be throwing our weight behind this. But but, you know, um, I like those roots go deep. Right. I mean, like, you know, it didn't just come from nowhere. Right. Obviously, you had, you know, movements like Occupy that were kind of like a nascent um coming together of a lot of the things we've been talking about today, right? A lot of that sense of injustice that people feel living under this system, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of evils of the corporate um, class and, and the kind of capitalist system started to become more apparent to people, you know, with the financial crash. They started to see just how rigged the game was and how much the government would fall over itself to bail out the banks and the capitalists and not us while we all lost our houses and retirements and everything else, right? They started to see how rigged the game actually was. But, you know, this also, you know, goes back to like, you know, the WTO um, protest in the 90s. Like there there were, there's like a generational connection there, right? Everyone has kind of contributed what they could and pushed the ball forward. And I think, um, you know, even a lot of the strikes that we've been seeing, especially like, say, the teacher strikes in Chicago and L.A. and then a lot of the red states. Right. Those didn't come from nowhere. Right. Those came from years of kind of internal union politics that pushed for more kind of progressive visions like bargaining for the common good. Like, you know, the Chicago teachers union was just bargaining with the city to, you know, basically provide housing for their homeless students. Right. I mean, like that, that is a, that is a demand that, that understands, you know, labor's position within a broader inhumane society. And that is trying to leverage collective worker power for the betterment of our fellow human beings. Right. That took work. That took convincing. That took conversations with union members, you know, over years. And so, I think that, yeah, this this pressure has been building because, I mean, to add to that, you also have just kind of like, you know, the growing shock and horror at our kind of immigration system. And people have been doing work on the ground there for years um, to kind of, uh, you know, reveal not only how terrible the Trump administration has been, but what the Obama administration did, what the Bush administration did. I think more and more people, again, are seeing that and are seeing that it's possible to do something about it. And that is pushing them to get more involved in it. And then, you know, you also had the emergence of Black Lives Matter, um, the kind of greater visibility um, of kind of the the just vast injustice of our kind of quote unquote criminal justice system that has, you know, incarcerated so many people in our fucking country. And that is like, you know, such a well-oiled machine whose primary purpose, along with the police, has been to police the lower classes, especially, you know, people of color, right? Especially kind of like, you know, working class communities um, that have so few options for kind of... Um, you know, improving themselves and are given so few funds and so little care from our political establishment. 
all of this, right, you know, was it has been bubbling up for years. And I think now it's we're finally seeing that, you know, while this has been going on outside of the kind of electoral realm, people like Bernie Sanders um, have at least provided one pathway for a lot of that political energy to infuse itself with and to, um, you know, to infuse itself with and and to influence, right, you know, electoral politics. And I think that that is kind of like where we are starting to see, you know, because like, you know, again, Bernie Sanders himself, you know, is not the most radical person, but he is, he is, I think, you know, at least provided a, a kind of uh, you know, opening a bullet hole into this kind of airtight corporate controlled um, political system where forces on the left at least feel like their kind of complaints can be heard and taken a bit more seriously in the mainstream. We have a long way to go in that respect, but I think that we are at least starting to see that kind of stranglehold that the ruling class has had on the political game, both from the Republican and the Democrat. Democratic side, right? I mean, just look at fucking Congress. Look at the you know people who run for president. Like they're they're all rich, right? I mean, like they 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 are the ruling class. They are not your common people, right? Um, the the Supreme Court, you know, by and large, you know, is populated with people who you know go to these same uh, boarding schools and who occupy these same upper echelons of society that most of us will never have access to. Again, that kind of stranglehold that, you know, the the upper and ruling classes have had on that political system, I think, is what has kind of kept, you know, so many people from feeling like, you know, that realm of politics could ever, you know, that they could ever have an influence on it. Um, but it has also kind of led to so much, uh, so many of the kind of problems that, you know, we are all kind of living through. And that we are all kind of trying to rebel against in our own ways that, you know, we are kind of seeing the, the culmination of that, that, you know, whether that be in Trump with people feeling so disaffected or so that having their status threatened that they throw their weight behind this, like, you know, wrecking ball of a candidate. Or, you know, we see people kind of diverting their energies towards a resurgent labor movement. Right. You know, I think that that. It, it can go a lot of ways, but this is just kind of like a long-winded way of saying that there are a lot of moving parts here, and the electoral realm is not the only political realm that is available to us. But I think that in you know since the 2016 election, a lot of those like simmering and boiling political energies have found at least some sort of pathway into having an influence on the electoral realm. And for people who believe that you know the possibility political possibilities um, in this current system end with, you know, I don't know, Joe fucking Biden or Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> you know, I guess I would say, you know, look around you like there there are other options there. You you can and should and deserve to push for more than that. To use fighting as a metaphor, uh, it's like that old saying, it takes a lot of preparation to land a lucky punch. To us, it just seems like, oh, they just came out of nowhere and it just worked, but it took a lot. It took a lot of energy and practice to get to where we are. I agree. And it's going to take a lot uh, more practice to get us to where we need to go. Going along with everything you said, do you think part of why socialism is no longer the boogeyman is because the right 
basically has called everything socialism, like, like, uh, everything we like, everything we want is socialism. So their plan is starting to backfire in the long run. I think that's part of it, honestly. I mean, you know, like I grew up very Catholic, very conservative. I have a lot of conservative family members and that's all I've been fucking hearing my whole life. Right. You know, like, yeah, any proposal for like, you know, just like basic, uh, you know, human dignity or providing, you know, like any sort of a level platform for people to kind of, um, you know, achieve some sort of good life is always equated with socialism. And I think that you know, they, they, it has in many ways kind of been the undoing of a lot of reactionaries or is it's at least kind of created the conditions where they can no longer keep a lid on that. Um, because, you know, at the same time that they're trying to kind of, you know, they have their boot on your neck and they're trying to convince you that any kind of saving grace is like even worse for you. It's this like boogeyman of socialism that that only works if like people, you know, the people you're trying to convince have some sort of like, you know, material circumstance where, you know, they, they feel like this is okay. Like they feel like they can handle that. Right. And a lot of that went away with the recession. Right. You know, a lot of people, I think in, you know, previous decades, especially the nineties and the early two thousands, right. When, when there was kind of a little more wealth and upward mobility available to kind of the middle and lower classes, right. When the recession kind of wiped that out, um, for, for, for so many of us, right. Suddenly you're being told the same things like, you know, socialism, you know, is, you know, creates bread lines or socialism makes us unfree. You know, it's Stalin kind of telling, telling you what to do. And I think a lot of people are looking around and being like, man, I feel pretty fucking unfree right now. Right. Like, I mean, like <laughs> I, I do not have the freedom to not go, you know, to not work like 15 hours a day because I have bills, you know, that, that I can't pay. I have red notices taped to my door. I have landlords who are jacking up my rent. I have wages that are stagnant. Like, I think one thing the left had gotten wrong in the past, but that we are getting right now is to understand that this sort of socioeconomic system, this rigged sort of game, it takes it, it. It is a system of unfreedom, right? We are less free under the system. And I guess that's the kind of point that I that I'd like to end on and that I think encapsulates kind of everything we've been talking about, right, is like, I think the resentment that so many of us feel, even if we don't know how to articulate it, right, comes back to that sort of lost, you know, potential of our basic humanity, right? Like how much joy have we been denied by this system because it only allows us to kind of feel sorts of joy that can be purchased as commodities, right? Or it only allows us to feel joy and to take joy from, you know, things that come at the cost of exploiting or killing other people. Right. You know, that we can only feel joy by buying like some electronic that was manufactured by people who are, you know, drinking poison water south of the border. Right. I mean, how much joy have we been denied, you know, that doesn't come with the price tag of infinite human suffering? Like this system has has capped so much of the potential that we as a collective humanity have for living, you know, 
in a more just and, and less hierarchical and less vicious and exploitative society. And it's convinced us that this is the only way it could be and that any proposal for anything different, whether that be socialism or something else, right, is somehow worse. Again, that message only resonates when, you know, people, I think, feel like they have a certain capacity to live and be free and to, you know, have control over their circumstances um, that capitalism it, it can't help itself. It's going to take that away from us. Right. It is always, you know, this is this is, I think, the basic point that Marx made is that, you know, the system of capitalism is set up to extract as much wealth as it can from the many and divert it up to, you know, the few. And that's the that's the basic functioning of the system. And the more that people feel disempowered and disenfranchised, you know, and and the less free they feel to live the ways that they want to, to do the things that they want to do and to be the kind of people that they want to be because they're so worried about their boss, their landlord, their bills and all that other shit. You can only keep a lid on that for so long. Right. You can only convince people, you know, that their cage is a castle for so long, but eventually they're going to figure it out. And I think people are starting to do that. But Max, what do we need freedom for when we can buy a Peloton? Right, man, that Peloton commercial needs to <laughs> needs to calm the fuck down. <laughs> like, yeah, you want to see unfreedom? Look at the look at that woman's eyes. <laughs> All right. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I know you're busy. So thank you, Max, for being on the show. Now, where can people find you and your work? Yeah, man. Thank you uh, for having me on. And thanks for, you know, the work that that you do. I really appreciate it. Um, so, I mean, if folks want to check out um, my podcast where I promise I do a lot less talking myself um, and I interview workers from around the country, um, you know, you can find us at working. We're called Working People. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, I finally uploaded everything to SoundCloud. So I did that like last week. If you listen to SoundCloud, um, if you want to hear bonus episodes with organizers and writers and academics and other podcasters who are working on labor issues um, and the issues that matter to working people, uh, please consider subscribing on our Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com slash working people. There's a lot of good bonus content there uh, for subscribers. It's just five bucks a month. Um, you know, we're on Twitter uh, at Working Pod. Uh, the Facebook group um, is is just Working People. Um, you know, reach out to us if you if you are a worker and you want to share your story. If you have you know <clears throat> coworkers or neighbors that you think we should reach out to or issues you want us to cover, you know, hit us up. We love we want to make this again as as an interactive and kind of grassroots as we possibly can. Um, and uh, for me, yeah. I think I'm just I'm just Maximilian Alvarez on Twitter and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, come come check us out. A Peloton? Give it up for our first time riding. Right, first ride. I'm a little nervous, but excited. Let's do this. Let's go, Grace in Boston. Fifty ride. She just said my name a year ago. I didn't realize how much this would change me. Thank you. Now that's the show. We've grown Southpaw purely from word of mouth, so that means it's all organic. So if you're already spreading the word, please continue to do so. If you've never done it, please consider telling your friends, sharing on social media, 
and also leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This will make it easier for others to find us. And since this is independent media, every dollar you pledge on Patreon goes a long way in the production of the show and will help us expand with more content on more platforms. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod.com.